Good afternoon. Hello, my name is Amina Alatas Bradford, and I'm one of the associate chaplains here at Calvin College. And I'd like to welcome you to the January series 2010 at Calvin. Can you please take a moment to silence your cell phones before we pray? God, whether we know it or not, we come needing the reconciling power of your Holy Spirit to open our ears to the voice of the other, to spread wide our imaginations in seeking after your kingdom so singularly that we will soon find our pews more diverse, yet more united than once thought possible. Bless the words of Soon Chan Ra as we remember today our brother Martin Luther King Jr. May the giving and receiving of Reverend Ra's lecture help release us from the colorless trappings of fear so that Jesus' name can reign in glory over the colorful tapestry that is your people. Amen. And now Michelle Lloyd-Page, Dean of Multicultural Affairs, will introduce our guest. Good afternoon. It is indeed my pleasure to um, welcome you again here to Calvin College in this lecture series, and it is my pleasure to introduce the speaker for this hour. Reverend Dr. Soon Chen Ra is a Milton B. Ingbertson, Associate Professor of Church Growth and Evangelism at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago, Illinois, and the author of the provocative book, The Next Evangelicalism, Freeing the Church from the Western Cultural Captivity. Prior to joining the North Park community, Prof. Ra is for, is, was the founding senior pastor of the Cambridge Community Fellowship Church, a multi-ethnic, urban-focused ministry that tried very hard to live out the values of racial reconciliation and social justice in an urban context. Currently, he serves on the board of Catalyst Leadership Center and Sojourners Called to Renewal. Reverend Dr. Ra is an appropriate vessel for this afternoon's presentation on this day where we are celebrating the birth of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Like King, he sees the body of Christ as a multi-ethnic community. Like King, he has a prophetic voice for this age, a voice that is willing to speak truth to power, a voice that is willing to challenge the injustices in our society and those who have blind eyes to that injustice. So whether challenging the portrayal of Asians in the media or whether calling our, to challenge our presumptions of the decline of American Christianity, Dr. Ra is a voice for our time. Calvin College is grateful to the Christian Reformed Home Missions for their support of this presentation this afternoon. Please join me in welcoming the Reverend Dr. Sung Chin Ra. Thank you very much. What an honor and a pleasure for me to be here, uh, to be part of a distinguished lecture series like the January series here at Calvin College. Uh, seeing the list of illustrious guests that you've had is a little bit intimidating. Um, 
uh, individuals and folks who've had tremendous cultural impact uh, as well as a, uh, an important voice in our churches and in the world. So uh, it's a real honor for me to be a part of that. I'm particularly honored to be able to do this on the commemoration of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and to speak at a gathering like this where we reflect and think about the impact of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, particularly as an Asian American, to be able to speak on this day, uh, to speak out of my experience as an Asian American, but also the legacy and the benefit that I've received as an Asian American that I owe to the African American community. A few years ago, I was asked to speak at Boston College's convocation on the commemoration of Martin Luther King's birthday, and uh, I was really honored that uh, they would ask me as an Asian American to be a part of that. And it turned out that in that gathering, in the front row actually, was one of the former worship leaders from the civil rights movement who had led the... The, uh, the marches with singing of the songs like We Shall Overcome, and he led us at that gathering through a chorus of We Shall Overcome. It was one of the most moving moments to be led by someone who had led worship during the time of the civil rights movement. And one thing I said to that individual, but also to the African-American gathered, African-Americans gathered that day, is that I owe a debt as an Asian-American to the black community that without the sacrifice, the blood, the sweat, the tears, the lives that were offered up on behalf of all Americans, I would not be where I am today. I could not own a home in the city of Chicago. I could not have gone to the schools that I've gone to. My children would not have the opportunities that are available to them. So the sacrifices of Dr. King and the African-American community and the black churches were not just for the black community. It was for all Americans. And we are better as a, as a nation and as a society because of the work of the civil rights movement, not only for the black community, but for the entire nation as well. So I personally am here because I owe a debt to the African-American community. I want to reiterate that once again, that we as American nation owe a debt to the black community for the work that have gone on before us that we can gather in a place like this. I stand on those shoulders today. I believe that Dr. King is the most significant and influential Christian of the 20th century. Some might argue for Billy Graham, and I would say yes, he's a wonderful uh, man of God who preached the gospel to millions and millions and impacted so many. Some might argue for Mother Teresa. Sure, here's another individual who impacted so many lives. Some might argue for Jim Elliott and the movement of mission that he sparked. I would argue, though, that the most significant and influential Christian of the 20th century is Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., Because out of his spiritual faith, out of his understanding of the gospel, that is how his life and his legacy was shaped and formed. Not out of his understanding of the world, but because he knew Jesus. And out of his spirituality, that's how we have inherited this legacy of Dr. King, because of his faith and because of his spiritual life. Dr. King, I think, makes two contributions for our discussion to say there are many others, but two that I want to emphasize and focus on. One is his statement that has been often quoted and often misunderstood, but we talk about this all the time, is that 11 a.m. Sunday morning is the most segregated time in the United States. Now, the sad part of that is that 40, 50 years later, we're still dealing with that reality, that we're still dealing with a very segregated nation, not only in our society as a whole, but even more so in the churches. A study was done in 2005 that examined the uh, number of uh, multi-ethnic churches in the United States, and they used what I would consider very generous guidelines in defining multi-ethnicity. They said if you had 80% of one group and 20% of another group, that would be considered multi-ethnic. Now, I said that's, that's very generous, but let's use those categories. 
And giving those generous categories, this study found that less than 8% of the churches in the United States could be considered multi-ethnic, even given these generous guidelines. Now, the study went on to say that even out of that 8%, less than 8%, half of those churches were in transition because they were in neighborhoods that were undergoing transition. So that meant that less than 4% of the churches in the United States are considered genuinely, authentically multi-ethnic churches. Less than 4% of American churches are integrated. Less than 4% are considered multi-ethnic. Now, if you look at it from one perspective, think about it if we heard of any other institution in the United States that was less than 4% integrated. If our government agencies were less than 4% integrated. If our institutions of higher education were less than 4% integrated. Any other institution in the United States, if that was less than 4% integrated justifiably there would be a media uproar, political uproar, at this injustice and this lack of integration. Yet here we are as a church in America with less than 4% integration and multi-ethnicity. And yet there are no outcries about this. There are no protests saying this is not the way it's supposed to be. So instead of the church leading on this matter, we are falling behind and not only falling behind, we are actually showing a, displaying a very pathetic and, and shortcoming when it comes to the issue of multi-ethnicity. So the claim or the, or the statement that Dr. King made that 11 a.m. is the most segregated time in America, unfortunately, is still true today here in the 21st century. The second aspect of Dr. King's life that I would like to reflect on is that Dr. King was clearly a prophet for his time. Dr. King understood that in his context, it was, it was what, what we would call, using biblical language, a kairos moment. A moment when it was important for leaders and prophets to step into this void of leadership, moral, prophetic, political, all these kinds of leadership that was necessary at that time, Dr. King stepped into that. There was a need for heroic leadership during this time. And at this pivotal moment in history, Dr. King stepped into that void and spoke out for justice, for the kingdom of God, for the nation, for the downtrodden. That's why he was a prophet for his time. And given what we're seeing right now in the world right now and in the U.S. right now, is it time for that kind of prophetic leadership once again? A pivotal moment in the church, both globally and here in the United States, which means how will we respond to this prophetic moment in, uh, in history? Let's talk a little bit about what we are seeing. I want to start by talking about the changes in global Christianity the changing face of Christianity. Some of this is going to be revealed in that most uh, historians and missiologists have already documented this very well. For example, if you were to take the year 1950 and ask, who is the typical Christian? Let's say in the year 1950, you got all the Christians in the world together in one room. And you said, what person or what type of person represents all the Christians in this room in the world? And if you were to say, well, that person is a white male, upper middle class, uh, living in an affluent suburb in his 50s, that would actually be an accurate answer as to who is the typical face of Christianity in the world in the year 1950. However, if you were to ask that same question in the year 2010, what should your answer be? If you got together all the Christians in the world in one room and said, what is the typical face of Christianity in the year 2010? The answer is actually going to be more likely a Nigerian peasant woman outside the city of Lagos, a Mexican city teenager, 
or a Seoul University student in, Korea, in South Korea. That's more the typical face of Christianity in the world right now. It is no longer that white male living in a Midwestern suburb, upper middle class in his 50s. It is now someone who is very different. It is the Nigerian. It is the Mexican. It is the Korean. It is a very different world that we live in. Philip Jenkins, who has probably done the most popularizing of this understanding, says that for 500 centuries or so, leading up to the end of the previous millennia, for 500 centuries or so, the story of Christianity was wrapped up with Europe and North America. And we could speak of a European Christian civilization or a North American or an American Christian civilization. However, in the past century, uh, and that's in the 20th century, in the past century, the 20th century, the center of gravity, the center of Christianity has shifted away from Europe and North America to Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And that there will be indeed a boom of Christianity in the 21st century, but that boom will occur not in Europe and North America, but actually in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And we're already seeing that. Let's look at some of these statistics. In the year 1900, these are taken from the the World Christian Encyclopedia by Barrett and Johnson. Uh, In the year 1900, 68% of the Christians in the world were found on the continent of Europe. 14% were found on the continent of North America. You could say that 83%, approximately 83% of the Christians in the world were on the white continents of Europe and North America. And so non-white Christians only made up 16% of the world's Christian population. Right now, or these are statistics from 2005, you will see drastic, dramatic changes in these numbers. So that the majority of Christians in the world right now are not in Europe and North America. They are found in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. So that the white continents, and I have these in quote and I'll explain that in a minute, has 40% of the Christian population, and Africa, Asia, and Latin America has 60% of the uh, world's Christian population. This is a done deal. We are living in an age where the majority of Christians are not in Europe and North America. We are living in a time period where the majority of Christians are not white. The projection is that by the year 2050, 71% of the Christians in the world will be in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, and less than 30% will be in Europe and North America. And again, I have those in quotation marks as as I'm going to uh, discuss the majority of those in Europe and North America by the year 2050 will also be non-white. So if we took those numbers another way, we can say that almost 80 to 90%, somewhere in the 85% range of Christians in the world are going to be non-white. So in a 150-year time frame, from the year 1900, where about 85% of the world's Christian population was white, to the year 2050, where 85% of the world's Christian population will be non-white, in only 150 years, we are seeing the complete turnover of the demographics of global Christianity. That's stunning if you think about it. We're right in the middle of this massive transition from a Christianity centered in Europe and North America to a Christianity centered in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. But as I said earlier, this is a done deal. There are many scholars that have written about this extensively. Philip Jenkins, Andrew Walls, Lamansane, Daniel Roberts. Just folks have written about this for the last 20, 30 years or so. They have recognized that we are living in a post-Western Christian era and that the Christian era now is really focused on Africa, Asia, and Latin America. 
But one challenge that I want to raise is that this shift that is occurring globally is also happening here in the United States. That even in the U.S., we are seeing a shift from a majority white Christianity to a multi-ethnic and majority non-white Christianity in the United States as well. Let's look at some larger trends that we see in terms of American society. Jenkins writes this. He says that the Immigration Reform Act of 1965 looks like the most important event of that particular decade. Now, you think about the 60s. That was a major time, right? I mean, a lot changed in American society in the 60s. Civil rights movement, counterculture, Woodstock, all those great things that occurred in the 60s. Well, Jenkins argues, and maybe there's some, uh, some uh, power to this the statement, that the Immigration Reform Act will do more to change America than these other factors. And one of the things that Jenkins is looking at is prior to 1965, there was a strict system of quotas that prevented certain countries from allowing their citizens to come to the United States to immigrate. So there were things like the Chinese Exclusion Act. And you don't have to take that... To, you don't have to uh, understand it too much. It's, it's what it says. It excluded Chinese. So the Chinese Exclu- Exclusion Act meant that there were not, Chinese immigrants were not allowed to come into the U.S. The Immigration Reform Act of 1965 changes a quota system that was geared so much towards Europe so that it was European immigration only prior to 1965. But then post-1965, immigration is now opened up to Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And because of that change uh, 45, 50 years ago, we are now seeing the product of that change to the point that we are seeing this huge influx of non-whites into the United States. So that the U.S.'s ethnic ethnic character becomes less European, less white, with all that it implies for religious and cultural patterns. This is the major change that we're seeing in American society. Look at some census projections. In the year 2008, the U.S. minority population was about a third of the American population. That was in 2008. It is projected by the year 2023 that the majority of children in the United States will be ethnic minorities. So by the year 2023, that's only 13 years away. Within the next 13, 15 years, the majority of children in the United States are going to be ethnic minorities. This number is in flux for a number of different reasons, but anywhere from 2042 to 2050, somewhere by the year 2050, the majority of Americans will be non-white. We are going to have a nation that is going to be majority minority. There will be no clear majority within the next 40, 50 years. So some of your lifetimes, you're going to see this. Now, that has been a cause of concern for a number of different people that by the year 2042 or 2050, the majority of Americans are going to be non-white, that's raised the ire of a number of talk show hosts, a number of, of people who have said, wait a minute, we've got to stop this from happening. And the way to stop this from happening is by changing the immigration laws or doing something with immigration laws or, or building a wall between Mexico and the United States so that we don't get this influx of immigration, so that we don't get this browning of America. We have got to stop this because we're losing our identity as an American people the more multi-ethnic we become. This was essentially the argument of Samuel Huntington, the professor at Harvard University who wrote in the book, Who Are We?, trying to talk about American identity and basing it largely upon the identity of being a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. 
And so the argument there by the talk show host and someone like Sam Huntington is that we need to maintain the white European majority in order for us to stay a, Amer- a true America. Now, here's the one word that I have for them. This is a done deal. There's nothing you can do to change the reality that we're going to become a multi-ethnic nation because of that middle statistic right there. If by 2023, we're going to have a majority of children be ethnic minorities, unless you're going to start killing children, which we shouldn't do, unless you're going to start killing children, you're going to have the majority of adults because these children are going to grow up. They're not going to change races in the middle of their, of their growing up. They're going, to, if they, they're, going to, they're going to add to this growing multi-ethnicity. So no matter what you do with the immigration laws, by 2023, the majority of children will be ethnic minorities. By 2045, 2055, 2060, you're going to have the majority of Americans be multi-ethnic or uh, non-white. This is a done deal. Here is the challenge, though, for the church. Because I would argue right now, based upon what I've been able to look at and reflect upon, that the American church is actually becoming multi-ethnic faster than American society. And this is surprising for many people because the church has never been ahead of American society. So here we have one of the first times in American history where the church is actually further along and that the American church is becoming more diverse at a faster rate than American society as a whole. Uh, Now this seems counterintuitive for some of the recent studies that have been done. For example, uh, about this time last year, actually about Easter time last year, there were two major articles in national uh, uh, magazines. The first was a series of blog entries by Michael Spencer that he converted into an article called The Collapse of Evangelicalism. Michael Spencer um, blogs under the moniker The Internet Monk. And uh, I, I, met, I had a chance to meet him over the, uh, um, over the summer at a conference. He's not really a monk, by the way. Uh, so the Internet Monk writes about the state of American Christianity, and his largest audience actually is disaffected Baptist, Southern Baptist. He lives in Kentucky and kind of has a, a nice pulse on disaffected Southern Baptist, and he has enough uh, readers among disaffected Southern Baptists that it's among the uh, t- uh, top 1,000 blogs internationally. So that's how many disaffected Southern Baptists there are in the world to make, the, uh, make it a, such a popular blog. So what Michael Spencer writes about in this particular journal article is that he sees the collapse of evangelicalism as we know it. That by, uh, as we're looking into the next millennia and the current millennia, evangelicalism as we know it will cease to exist. Around Easter time this uh, last year, John Meacham of Newsweek wrote this article called The End of Christian America. And if you know, if you um, subscribe to Time or Newsweek, you know that once a year they have the Christian article, right? Right around Easter time, they have pictures of Jesus on the cover and you know, little churches on the cover because they want to sell magazine articles during Easter time when people want to read articles about Jesus. And so every year they write these articles about Jesus during Easter time, and they tend to be nice articles about Jesus. Or, uh, but this time was a major exception. This year, John Meacham's article was The End of Christian America, and in it was this black cover with red lettering in the shape of a cross. Very ominous-looking cover. But in it, Meacham is, uh, is talking about the decline and demise of Christianity in America. Now, both of these uh, magazine articles were reflecting two studies that were done in the past year. One was by the Pew Foundation. The other was the ARIS report, the... Uh, uh, Religious Identification Survey. Uh, And in both of these, they were talking about the decline of Christianity, but particularly among evangelicals. 
In fact, the fastest growing religious affiliation in the United States right now is a group called Spiritual But Not Religious. That group went from 8% in 1990 to uh, 16% in the year 2005. That's the fastest group, a uh, growing group in the United States. What the Pew and Eris reports also looked at was the decline of evangelical Christianity over the past few decades and the decline of the numbers in Christianity over the past few years. Now, this has been very interesting because in these reports, what we are saying is Christianity is in danger. Christianity is in decline. Uh, a book by uh, Dave Olson called The American Church in Crisis this, captures this well. And what you see on the far right column there are the trends of church decline and the population attending a church on a given Sunday. Uh, some of the previous surveys done on church participation has really focused on who claims to go to church. And uh, that number goes anywhere to 40 to percent, to 50 to 70 percent, claim to go to church. Now, what Dave Olson found is that people lie on these surveys. They <laughs> claim to go to church, but they're not at church. So what he did was he said, instead of talking about when people go to, uh, claim to go to church, let's actually count the number of people that go to church on, on a typical Sunday. And these were his findings. He found that in 1990, 20% of Americans were attending Christian churches, but that number has dropped to 17.5% by the year 2005. Interesting thing that you'll note is that the mainline churches, 4% of American Christians were going to in the year 2000, uh, in the year 1990, but it dropped to 3%. Now, that doesn't look like much, right? A 1% drop. But if you look at it proportionally, the mainline churches in 15 years lost 25% of its attendance. When you go from 4% to 3%, that's not a 1% drop. The proportional drop is you've lost a quarter of your attendance in a 15-year time period. And if you attend a mainline church or are familiar with some of the mainline churches, you would say, you know what? That's absolutely true. In fact, maybe those numbers are worse than, than those numbers that, that I just quoted to you. These, these churches are hemorrhaging people. They're, they're losing people left and right. A uh, very similar scenario in the Catholic church as well. Um, there's a, a huge media campaign right now called CatholicsComeHome.org, I believe it is, where there's this appeal for Catholics to come back into the Catholic Church. Part of the reason is a large percentage have left the Catholic Church. Now, one interesting thing is you'll notice that the evangelical numbers are relatively flat. 9.2, 9.1, 9.1, 9.1. .1. So among evangelical churches, at least the evangelical churches are keeping up with the population trends on, uh, on, uh, in, the, in the United States. So in that sense, that's, uh, that's good news. But here's the bad news associated with that good news. The ARS report, the Pew report, Spencer's reports, and the uh, magazine article by uh, Meacham were pointing out to a decline in Christianity. I would argue that that decline is among white evangelicals. And that's why there is this, all this lamenting and hand-wringing about the decline of the church in America. Because we really are seeing the decline, uh, decline of the church in America, but it is among white evangelicals. Let me illustrate this very quickly here. That line that shows evangelical church attendance, flat line. Now, many evangelical denominations, okay, we're surviving. We're not declining in number, we're doing Okay. A few years ago, I was at this conference that had pulled together civic leaders, political leaders, and re uh, religious leaders. The civic leaders, uh, and we were talking about the issue of immigration. And one of the denominational officials at that meeting said, uh, under the condition of anonymity, I want to share this story. So I won't tell you who it was, and I won't tell you what denomination it was, but let's say it's a good, mid-sized, recognizable American evangelical denomination. 
What he said was, if you look at our numbers, we look like we're doing okay. If you look at our overall numbers, we look like that chart right there on the far left column. We look like a flat line, maybe even a slight uptick of growth. You know, we're not doing badly, it looks like, for anybody who looks at our statistics of church growth in the last 10, 15 years. But, he said, if you take out of our numbers the immigrant churches and the ethnic minority churches, our numbers would look just as bad as the mainline churches. And the mainline churches are in a panic. They're in a frenzy trying to figure out how they're going to survive into the next decade and the next decade after that. But here we have an evangelical leader saying, you know what? We're just as badly off. The only reason we're surviving and nobody notices how bad off we are is because of the influx of immigration, uh, immigrants, because of the influx of non-whites into our churches or these immigrant or ethnic-specific churches that are propping up our numbers. And without those numbers, we are in just as sharp decline as the other um, mainline denominations. Denominational trends. The larger and growing denominations tend to be multi-ethnic. Baptist. Now, this is slightly deceiving in that the the term Baptist here encompasses all the Baptists. Southern Baptists, American Baptists. Southern Baptists tends to be predominantly white, but it also includes national and progressive Baptists, which tends to be African-American denominations. So if you got all the Baptists in one room, it would be very confusing, but if you got all the Baptists in one room... 64% of that gathering would be white. And in Pentecostals, again, the range of Pentecostals, AOG, which is predominantly white, versus Church of God in Cleveland, which would be predominantly black, you got all the Pentecostals in one room, you would find that it is 58% white, 42% ethnic minorities. In other words, the large and growing denominations are the most ethnically diverse. Then if you look at the smaller or sharply declining denominations, Lutheran, Congregational UCC, Episcopalian, the common thread that you will find is that they are the most monolithic. They are the most overwhelmingly white in their their constituency. So what we're seeing is the more diverse the denomination, the more likely you are to grow. The smaller are the the more monolithic and especially monoethnic white, the less likely you are to grow. These are some of the trends that we're seeing in American Christianity. Um, In the article by uh, by Meacham, there was a really interesting opening paragraph. The first two paragraphs uh, reference uh, Al Mohler, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he was quoted as saying, kind of lamenting the loss of New England or the Northeast as a place that had become very secular. And the trends were showing that the Northeast was becoming more and more secular. And he was lamenting. He was kind of saying, well, the Northwest has always been secular, but the Northeast has always been a place of spiritual vitality. We know that through our history. It was the place where Jonathan Edwards was, uh, uh, you know, in the Great Awakening. And, and that's where Moody became a Christian. It's, a, it's been a center of spiritual revival in the United States in, a, in an earlier part of its history. But Moeller was lamenting the fact that the Northeast was now a spiritually dead place. And that, by the way, is not an uncommon perception for many Americans. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, and I was uh, planning to go up to seminary in the Boston area. And as I was getting prepared to move from Washington, D.C. to Boston, my church gathered around to pray for me that I would not lose my faith in that secular sinkhole known as Boston, Massachusetts, that in that humanistic secular area that I would not lose my faith. Forget that I was going to seminary, but no, we still want to pray for you that you would not lose your faith in this very secular environment. 
Now, here I am driving up I-95, leaving uh, Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area to drive up to Boston, scared that I'm going to lose my faith in this very godless nation, uh, a place known as Boston, Massachusetts. But I get there, and I find a very different story. I find, actually, a spiritual vibrancy and a life in New England that nobody told me about. And why, I ask, that nobody talk, talks about this story of this incredible spiritual vitality. Well, here's what was happening. What you'll notice in the population growth from 2000 to 2005 is uh, the thing that sticks out to me is, one, the rate of Hispanic uh, population growth across the board. You know, every single region, there is this massive rate of Hispanic growth. But what you'll notice is that the one area that you're seeing a decline are Anglos and whites in the Northeast. That's where you're seeing a decline of the population. Other places are going up, but it's the Anglos in the Northeast that are experiencing the numerical decline. If you contrast that, the same categories, but look at the church attendance, you'll see in the South a decline of evangelical church attendance. Midwest and West are relatively flatline, but it's actually the Northeast that's the only region of the country that's showing an increase in church attendance. Let's try to superimpose this in our minds. So we're seeing a decline of whites in the Northeast and an increase of church attendance in the Northeast. You're seeing an increase in huge numbers of whites in the South and a decrease among church attendance in the South. So what Meacham and Spencer are referencing is indeed there is a decline of Christianity in America. Indeed, there does seem to be a collapse of evangelicalism, but that collapse is happening among white American evangelicals. And it's not happening among the ethnic minorities. In fact, there is a revival. Um, It's called a quiet revival because nobody hears about it. Nobody talks about the revival in New England because everybody says, oh, you go to New England, you see all these empty church buildings. Yes, those are church buildings left over from 100, 200 years ago that these mainline denominations have now emptied out. But you go around the corner from that huge, empty UCC church building and around the corner, you'll see half a dozen storefront churches that are vibrant as ever. You'll see an active African-American church in the community. You'll see Pan-Asian churches springing up left and right. So is Christianity on the decline? Yes, among white evangelicals. But among the larger American church, it's actually on the uptick because of the ethnic minority and immigrant communities. Uh, Let me give you one more statistic on this. In the year 1970, there were about 300 churches in the city of Boston proper. Again, not a very uh, large city, so 300 churches is about right. But what happened is that most of those churches no longer exist. They've shut their doors. There are now art centers or museums or even condos. They have completely ceased to exist as churches. So of those 300 churches, 99% of those churches would have been white. They no longer exist. But in the year 2000, uh, 2005, the current estimate is that there are over 600 churches in the city of Boston. A net gain of anywhere from 400 to 500 new churches planted in a 35-40 year time frame. That's phenomenal. A church, a city of Boston size to have 400 to 500 new churches planted over a 40, uh, 50 year time frame, that's not spiritual death. That's amazing spiritual revival. But why have we not heard about this? Because most of these churches have been in the ethnic and immigrant communities. And right now, of those 600 churches, over half of those churches hold a service in a language other than English. Uh, between the year 2000, One in 2006, 98 new churches were planted in that six-year time period. Again, that's not spiritual death. 
That's incredible spiritual revival. But how come nobody hears about this? Because those plant churches are not being planted in the white community. They're being planted in the African-American, Asian, and Latin American communities. Of the 98 churches, uh, they were asked, 76 of the churches reported their language of worship, and more than half of those churches said that they had a worship in a language other than English. Now, this also does not include some Asian-American churches that were started up, but they speak English, but they're comprised mostly of Asian-Americans. There is a church uh, in, uh, in the western part of Cambridge that did English as their main language, but it was comprised of African immigrants who spoke English. There was another church in the south side of Boston. Um, uh, again, the main language is English, but the majority were Caribbean-Americans, Jamaica, Barbados, who, for whom English was their primary language. So even among those who didn't speak English, many of those are ethnic minority churches as well. And by the way, that gap of 98 churches planted, only 76 reported a uh, Engli- uh, uh, language other than uh, English, um, probably that 22 also, are uh, many of those are probably uh, non-English speakers. That's why they didn't respond to the survey, because the survey was conducted in English. So we're talking about a, a pretty significant percentage, certainly the majority and maybe even an overwhelming majority of churches in Boston that are now non-English speaking, ethnic minority and immigrant churches. This is a major, major change in American Christian history. We are right on the cusp of some major changes. Now, the issue for me is not are these changes occurring. You just open your eyes when you walk through the city of Chicago. You just open your eyes when you walk through the city of Boston and you see how many storefront churches have sprung up, how many white churches are dying down and how those churches are being replaced by Korean churches and uh, uh, Spanish-speaking churches and African-American churches. You know that that is the reality. And we're seeing this not just in the urban centers, but we're also seeing this in the suburban communities and in the rural communities as well. These are drastic changes that are occurring in American society. We are going to be a majority non-white Christianity faster than American society. Again, this is a chance for us to lead. This is that Kairos moment. This is that moment where God seems to be doing something amazing. How are we going to respond? I would challenge that historically, in the 20th century, we did not do a good job of responding as a church. And I'll I'll, I'll talk about this in two ways. Um, That in the 20th century, we had two expressions of how Christians responded to cultural changes. One was a marginalized Christianity that became irrelevant to the culture, and the other was a mainstream Christianity that also became irrelevant to the culture. So the church has had a history of not knowing how to relate well to changes in the culture. So in the 20th century, we see this. We see this in churches that decided to run away from the culture, hide their head in the sand and say, we want to have nothing to do with that evil world out there. Or we have churches embrace the culture so much that you can't distinguish the church from the world and also becomes irrelevant because you can't distinguish the church from the world. So in in recent history, American Christianity has not done well with changing culture. The reality is we are in the midst of another cultural change. How are we going to respond? How have we responded previously? In terms of marginalized Christianity, you see this particularly in the architecture. Fundamentalists and kind of churches that try to disconnect to the world uh, would have architecture that looks quite a bit like this. It's hard to see with the slide here, but it's essentially a sloped ceiling with a little bit of an arch. 
Um, you don't see this in New England because many of those churches were built in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, in a previous era. You don't see this in California because they're, they're really new churches and they meet in gyms all the time. So where you see churches like this are actually in the Midwest. How many of you have seen church buildings like this or sanctuaries like this with kind of a slanted roof and an arched ceiling? Okay, now you, I'm sorry, this is a middle, middle, Midwest crowd, so nobody's raising their hands. So in, uh, in many of the churches that were built in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, you'll see this kind of architecture. Now, when my church back in uh, Maryland uh, built a new church building, our pastor was actually explaining why they chose this particular shape for the church building. Because um, I was looking at this, this is really inefficient. For one, you know, you, uh, the heating costs get really high because all the heat rises up to this little point on top of your building. It doesn't make sense. And you have to put ceiling fans in and then, you know, keeps char- the charismatics out of the church. All these kinds of things. It was, was like, what's going on? Why would you have this kind of inefficiency in your sanctuary? And my pastor explained it this way. When you look up at this uh, architecture, what do you see? If you turn it upside down, what does it look like you're looking at? It's a boat. It's a boat. And in the Bible, the boat, the, the, the use of the boat, is as Noah's Ark. Now think about the symbolic and theological message when the church says, we are Noah's Ark. So here you have the sanctuary, and here you have Noah's Ark. <laughs> what are you saying to the world if you say your church is Noah's Ark? What's the mentality of Noah's Ark? The world is going to be condemned, destroyed, and judged. As long as I have my little safety of being in Noah's Ark, then it's okay. It's okay for me to be on Noah's Ark because I don't want to be destroyed by the world out there. So what do we do in our churches? What do we do in our Christian institutions? What do we do in our Christian educational institutions? We create a little microcosm of the world, but it's not really the world. It's just a ripoff of the world. And we try to stay safe in the confines of Noah's Ark. So we create our own Christian form of music that is usually a ripoff of secular forms of music. We create Christian t-shirts that are usually a ripoff of secular t-shirts or Christian art. We have a Christian form because we're trying to stay safe in Noah's Ark. Now, how do you do evangelism in Noah's Ark? You save one person at a time. You might throw a life vest out there to save one person, pull them up, but you don't care about what happens in the world. In fact, you want to see the world destroyed because you're safe in Noah's Ark. And that becomes the symbolic, theological, sociological message that many churches convey to the world. As long as we've got the safety of our church, we don't want to have anything to do with the world. This is a marginalized Christianity that becomes irrelevant to the culture because we have nothing to say to the culture. Now, what's interesting is that architecture shifts in the 80s and 90s. And in the 80s and 90s, you start seeing this kind of architecture. Architecture that looks more like movie theaters, that looks more like entertainment venues. And not just the sanctuary part of it, but when you go out into the the narthex and other parts of the church, what are the main things that the church starts to look like? The church starts looking like malls. So if you go to a, 
of the typical megachurch, the two dominant forms of architecture are the entertainment venue that is the sanctuary and the mall that kind of is on the outside of that. A few years ago, I was at this megachurch in Virginia, and I was uh, walking down. This person was very proud of his church and was showing me this church. I was walking down this, uh, this hallway, and of course, there was this information kiosk, and then there was a little coffee shop area, and then there was a little store where they were selling the um, uh, books and t-shirts, and then another place where they were selling paraphernalia from the church, and another place where they were selling CDs from the pastor's sermons, and then at the end of the hallway was this beautiful McDonaldland-type uh, playground area that was better than any playland that I've seen at McDonald's, and if you forgot for a second that you were in a church, you would say, I'm at one of the nicest malls I've ever been in, because we have taken from the culture, and we have co-opted it. And so that our sanctuaries look like entertainment venues. And the uh, picture there on the right is actually a, a picture that I took off of an online catalog for church furniture. For church furniture. Now all it's missing is a you know, cup holder and a popcorn tray and we're all set. So in our churches now, we're not a marginalized Christianity, we're a mainstream Christianity. And in that sense, we look too much like the world that again, we're irrelevant to the world as well. So in these two, and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm generalizing and I'm creating this very stark contrast to prove a point that in the 20th century, the church has had by and large a dysfunctional relationship with the culture, either marginalized to the point that we don't have anything to say to the world or over, over uh, sensitized to the uh, captive to the uh, culture that we also don't have anything to say to the world, a mainstream Christianity and a marginalized Christianity. What I would argue in both of those scenarios is that in both those scenarios we see a cultural captivity to Western white forms of Christianity. That both of those dysfunctional relationship is reflective of a Western white dominant expression of American evangelicalism. And my challenge is that given the changing nature of American Christianity, can we continue to have a Western white dominated Christianity that we have right now? Let me give you a few examples of this. I'll, I'll, I'll close with these two examples and then we'll open it up for discussion. The first example is when I get brochures for, uh, uh, for pastor's conferences. I pastored the church for, for 10 years uh, and then I was a campus minister for a number of other years as well. And one of the jobs of a senior pastor is to open the mail on Tuesday morning. After your day off, you get in and you have this pile of mail and so the first job is to open all the mail. So I would go through the church's mail and I'm going through the church's mail and there would be so many brochures and pamphlets advertising national pastors' conferences. I mean, every other uh, flyer seemed like national pastors' conferences. And when I was a senior pastor, I would look through these conferences and I would say, wow, there's not a single Asian speaking at any of these conferences. So the National Pastors Conference will have 50 speakers, the most innovative and brightest and most exciting pastors anywhere. And there would be one ethnic minority out of those 50 speakers. And that person would be an African-American who's leading worship. We're talking about urban ministry. And so what we've done is we've said the real experts, the real shakers and movers and leaders of evangelicalism are white males in their 50s. And we have ignored African-American churches, Asian churches, Latino churches, or even multi-ethnic churches because we are uplifting and saying this is the standard what evangelical Christianity is going to look like. A white male in his 50s who has a successful megachurch. Now, you might say, well, that's a previous era. That's what the boomers like. And the next generation likes something different. I will give you the example of the emerging church. And I have gotten into trouble for saying this, but I'll say it again. The emerging church is the most overrated movement in U.S. church history. 
It is ridiculously overrated because you have this small, really small group of white American middle class evangelicals deciding this is what everybody else should understand. The example that I use is that there was a book by uh, Gibbs and Bolger called The Emerging Church, and they were tracking the, the stories of the emerging and emerging churches. And they found that there were about 200 churches that fit the category of emergent, and in both the U.S. and the U.K. combined. And so generously saying that 75% of those churches are in the U.S., that means there were, at about 2005, there were 150 churches in the U.S. that could be qualified as the emerging church. In the year 2005, do you know how many books to date have been written about the emerging church? 50 books. 50 books representing 150 churches. And Emerging Church has their own imprint imprint in three publishing companies. They have their own specific imprint for Emergent and Emerging Church, a group that represents 150 churches. Now, that number actually might be exaggerated because I had my TA go through and, you know what, uh, do a Google search on these churches that are listed in the back of Gibbs and Bolger's book. He found that half of those churches no longer exist. So we're talking about a tiny sliver of American Christianity And publishing companies and Christian media are obsessed with the emerging church. They talk about the emerging church, maybe not as much in this year, but for the last 10 years, as a pastor, all I kept hearing is, oh, you got to learn about the emerging church. you got to read this book by this emerging pastor. Oh, this is the book to read. Why? When it only represents about 100 churches in the United States. In contrast, churches that are ministering to Asian Americans, second generation, not even first generation, second generation Asian Americans number anywhere from 350 to 700, depending on the study you're looking at. So there could be up to 700 churches in the United States that are ministering to second generation Asian American. How many books have you heard about that talk about the emerging Asian American church? You can count them on your hand, the list that have been officially published under the emerging Asian American church. Now, the White emerging church gets ink after ink after ink, press after press after press. So what is that a captivity towards? Is it a reflection of what's really going on in our culture and society, or is it a reflection of the Western white cultural captivity of American evangelicalism? One final illustration. Uh, This might be somewhat controversial. I would say that one of the uh, issues that I think we as a church needs to step into, and I think we're starting to see this, is on the issue of immigration. For example... When I look through the scripture and I'm reading through the scripture, what I'm finding in scripture is a a lot of passages about caring for the alien and immigrant among us. I mean, that's just all over the scripture. Last count, I had about 100 plus references about caring for the alien and immigrant among us. Now, going through the scriptures again, I have yet to find a single passage about the right to bear arms. Now, please don't get me wrong. I don't have a problem with the right to bear arms as a constitutional amendment. I don't have a problem with that. That's a political and, and an important constitutional amendment. I'm just saying it's not in the Bible. So as a Christian, I'm looking at the right to bear arms and the care for the alien and immigrant among us, but I wonder if we go into a typical American evangelical church, which you're going to find more followers of, the NRA or those who are out for immigration reform. So is that really a Christian biblical worldview, or is that more of a cultural American Western white perspective on the way we relate to society and culture. Those are the challenges that we need to raise because the reality of a multi-ethnic America is here. It's going to happen in American society, but in terms of American Christianity, it's a done deal. It has already happened. But how many of us are prepared to take on these challenges? Let me close my comments there and then open it up for questions.
Thank you again very much. I told you he had something to say and is a voice for this time and this age. We have a few moments for questions, and if you do have a question, I would ask that you would move to the microphones um, in either aisle so that we can hear your question on tape as we are recording. Over here. Hi. Hi. Excellent presentation. Um, I just had a question. <laughs> um, I just had a quick question about um, the dropping in the white churches. Um, and when that uh, Newsweek article came out, there was some talk about this. To what degree could we say the white church, even the white church, is uh, truly declining versus maybe uh, the cultural Christendom? You know, f- yes, I'm a Christian, I go to church, you know, but, you know. Are they really authentic Christians? And is it maybe the cultural climate has changed and those people that have been just going with a flow now can sit at home comfortably? That's, that's very true. I think um, that, that's one of the most significant developments that we've seen in our understanding of Christianity is the movement of understanding Christianity beyond Christendom, especially here in the United States. So one of the things that these studies and these reports have done is it has shaken, out, shaken us out of the assumptions of Christendom. And so in, the, in, a, in, a, in a very positive way, articles like Meacham and Spencer and the ARIS report have shaken us as an American Christianity out of the doldrums to say, we have made some assumptions about the way Christianity operates. What I'm challenging is, yes, we need to challenge those assumptions, but we also need to understand that there is a whole different set of variables that have been introduced to American Christianity in the last 40 years. It is complicated and complex enough to deal with this change of ideas and Christendom and the shaking out of, so that spiritual but not religious, that's a very important category because many of them are probably formally church. They've left the church, but they probably have some kind of faith background at some point. Uh, We don't want to ignore that community. We don't want to say, you know, let's throw that out, but understand that that community is also experiencing these extremely different variables that we're not quite aware of right now. So it's it's a much more complex picture than let's just reach these white evangelicals that have left the church. Over here. The New York Times this morning had a headline on its front page, Amid the Rubble, Seeking a Refuge in Faith. Could you say something about the dynamic and power of the church in those circumstances? Absolutely. Um, in, in my book, I talk about the, what Walter Brueggemann calls the difference between celebration and suffering. And that uh, there are times, especially in church history, where we look at places of celebration and we make assumptions that those who are in celebration and affluence have the corner on truth more than those who are in suffering. Um, So uh, in American society, that's part of the cultural captivity of Western white culture. Because Western white culture has the power, has the authority, has, has the tools, has the financial power, the academic power, all of these things, that Community has the right, in some sense, to determine what faith might look like, and even theology. What that does is eliminate the voices of suffering, uh, poverty, uh, struggle, uh, that has so much to say about the gospel message. Now, let me enter into some tricky territory here. Um, In the West, there is this extreme obsession with the theory of the atonement and propitiation, and uh, a lot of uh, the whole thing about the, the price that, was, that Jesus paid on the cross, but also the wrath of God uh, spent on, on, uh, on Jesus. Um, those are important dialogues to have, but it is a very Western-focused conversation. Because in the West, there is a lack of understanding of suffering. 
because we don't have that much suffering in the West. I mean, we have some, but compared to Haiti right now, compared to Sudan a few years ago, or even right now, there's, there's a huge disconnect between the reality of our suffering and the suffering overseas in other parts of the country, of the, other parts of the world. So that suffering is something we don't understand. That's why we in the West are in some sense obsessed with suffering. So that's why we can't understand a Jesus who would suffer it. And so we need to unpack that and debate that to almost no end. Now, if you look at some of the theologies emerging, for example, out of Latin America, out of the context of suffering, out of the context of great persecution, there's not much discussion on the crucifixion per se. There's a lot of talk about the resurrection. And that's where things like liberation theology comes in and says, you know, we understand suffering. We live suffering every day. We're, we're at the foot of the cross every day because that's our reality here among the poor in Latin America. We don't get this whole thing about the triumphant return of Jesus and the power of God to wipe out every tear. That's something that's a little bit beyond us. So in that community, there's a longing to understand that. That's why things like liberation theology are coming out of Latin America. So one of the things is that because we in the West have a particular framework that comes out of a particular experience, we have an incomplete gospel. We don't have a full understanding of what is the gospel of Jesus Christ because we only have one angle of that gospel message. And because of our affluent context, all we focus on are things that we don't understand like suffering. Whereas those who are in suffering have a different angle because they're saying, well, we know the suffering. We need to know the resurrection. And so it is when these groups get together and dialogue and say, not just me helping the poor, but me learning about faith from the poor that I would not get because of my position of affluence. We have one. We have a question from a, a viewer who is in Linden, Washington, and the question is: What is your definition of church? Does your definition include house churches? Yeah, I would say so. Um, by church, you know, you have the church with the capital C, the church that includes all believers, but then you have the local expressions of the church as well. Um, interesting uh, work that's been done recently about house churches and finding that house churches operate tend to operate better in places of persecution. Uh, like uh, some of you might know, the house church movement in China is just going through the roof. You can't even count the number of Christians in China because of these kind of underground small house churches that have sprang up. And there's a growing number of house churches here in the United States. Some of that coming because of the post-Christian uh, sense of where we are right now. So yeah, you would count them as part of the, the church universal, but also as kind of a local expression of the church. It just defies some of the categories that we've had for church for the last few years. We are... Um 30 seconds away from needing to whisk you downstairs. Um, his um, books are downstairs, available for you to purchase as well. I think we can get you to sign a couple of the books. Um, further questions, you may ask him downstairs. So if you have a 30-second question, she's walking away. Okay, he might have a 30-second question. Yes or no? Uh, Anglican, UCC, Lutheran have recently made progressive statements on gender identity and sexuality. Baptists and Pentecostals has not. Is there a correlation, you think, or is race and ethnicity a much, much better description for growth and decline in the church? Yeah, obviously this is very complex, and that is not a 30-second question. <laughs> <laughs> It is obviously very complex, which, uh, and, I, and it's not necessarily an answer to your question. What we have found is that ethnic minorities tend to be socially more conservative. 
So the, the whole thing about, uh, was it Prop 8 in California, that one of the things that turned that vote was actually the African-American Christians turning out in very large numbers, uh, voting for Barack Obama, but at the same time uh, opposing um, gay marriage. So we're, we're seeing that trend. I'm not sure what the correlation will be. Uh, that's still something we need to kind of walk through and figure out. Uh, but it is obviously very complex, uh, both in terms of theology, in terms of ethnicity, in terms of social issues. All of these are in the mix right now. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.